Let's start things out with TJ and Claudia coming up here. Front and center. Yes. All right. Come into my spotlight. It was June 29th, 60 years ago at St. Anthony's in Dayton, Ohio. Hmm? Why'd you come here? His job. Yes. God bless it. Join hands. Her hand, not mine. Yes. <laughs> I have fun. Okay. Bow your head so we're going to bless you. Holy Father, you created humankind in your own image. It made man and woman to be joined as husband and wife in union of body and heart and so fulfill their mission in this world. Father, to reveal the plan of your love, you made the union of husband and wife an image of the covenant between you and your people. In the fulfillment of this sacrament, the marriage of Christian man and woman is a sign of the marriage between Christ and the church. Father, stretch out your hand today and bless anew TJ and Claudia as they celebrate six decades of your marriage covenant. Lord, grant that as they continue to live out their sacramental life, they may share with each other the gifts of your love, being one in heart and mind, as witnesses to your presence in the marriage and in their home. Give your blessings to Claudia that she may continue to be a good wife, mother, and grandmother, faithful in love for her husband and family, generous and kind. Give your blessings to TJ, your son, so that he may continue to be a faithful husband and a good father and grandpa. Lord, grant that as they came together at your table on earth 60 years ago, so they may one day have the joy forever of sharing your banquet feast in heaven. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Kiss your bride. For three weeks in a row, we've been listening to Matthew chapter 10. It started with Jesus choosing 12, just 12 out of thousands of people that were following him to be his apostles, which mean one who is sent. And then he sent them out two by two. And all throughout this chapter, he keeps raising the bar as he defines discipleship for them. He told them they could take nothing with them. He told them that they were going to be hated by everyone because of him and that some of them were going to be put to death. But he told them the rewards would be greater than the risk. He promises them that if they're willing to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him wherever he leads them, they will share in his great victory that comes at the price of death. But inasmuch as Jesus has told them they have to be willing to suffer for the sake of the cause entrusted to them, now he has told them, if you're not willing to love me more than you love your wife or your kids, you're not worthy of me and cannot be my disciple. That makes some people a little bit uncomfortable. Think, what do you mean? I'm not supposed to love my spouse or my kids? No, it just means we love God more. And because we love God more, we are capable and enabled of loving anybody else. Jesus defines the greatest commandment as you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That is a challenge for all of us, and it's a struggle for each of us, myself included, to keep God at the center. And that's all that Jesus is talking about. He's not telling us that we shouldn't love our family, but that we should love our family because we love God, and God loves us. Because we love God, and God loves our family, and he's given us to each other to work out our salvation together. But then he speaks about the rewards, the rewards of a prophet, 
and the rewards of a righteous man. Whoever receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, receives a prophet reward. Well, that doesn't mean much to us, but we have a great example of it in the first reading today from the second book of Kings. A story we don't hear about very often, but it's Elisha, the successor of Elijah, doing great things for the glory of God. Elisha learned from Elijah, and now he has received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elisha thinks whatever Elijah could do, maybe I can do better. And we see great parallels in their ministry. But like the apostles eight centuries later, Elisha had to leave everything in order to be Elijah's successor. Elisha was the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, one of the wealthiest men in Israel of that time. Most of the other prophets, when they were pressed into God's service, they were poor, they were middle class. But Elisha, he was really giving something up when he gave it away to do the will of God. And then it was a new experience for him where he never had to worry about where he was going to stay or what he was going to eat. Now he has to depend completely on the kindness of strangers for his every need. And that is where he encounters the woman from the village of Shunem. S-H-U-N-E-M. The book doesn't name her, but there's three verses missing from today's first reading. And in those three verses, Elisha refers to her directly, and he calls her a great name, the Shunemitess. I had to say that three times really fast to learn it. Sounds like a conquering hero. Well, she receives a prophet because he is a prophet. She believes he is a man of God, and she tells her husband, we're going to welcome him into our home. He has nowhere else to stay. And they're even willing to add on to the house to make room for him, building him a private space on the roof. She's received a prophet. She will receive the prophet's reward. Elisha blesses her and makes her a mother of a son. And if that's all we knew, that would be a great and happy ending to the story. But it gets more challenging and it gets even better. For after this reading stops, if we kept looking at chapter 4 of the second book of Kings, we'd see that that very child that Elisha gave to this woman, the Shunemitess, is then taken from her. He dies in the field and is laid out on his bed, dead. The father is there grieving at his son's bedside. But the Shunemitess, she goes off in search of Elisha and says, why would you give me a son if you were just going to take him away? It would have been better to never have him at all. Elisha's not going to leave her in her despair. Instead, he comes to her home and gives that child what we might call divine CPR, a mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation that after seven times, the child is brought back to life. And she rejoices, the child rejoices, and Elisha has once again knocked one out of the park for God. But he learned from the master Elijah how to do this. In the first book of Kings, chapter 17, Elijah did the very same thing for the son of the widow of Zarephath. We know that mother and son because of the famous story of Elijah coming to them when everybody's starving in Israel because of a drought that's lasted for three and a half years. And he asked the woman, a stranger, can you give me something to eat? And she said, all we have is this little bit of oil and this little bit of flour. I'm going to make one last loaf for my son then we're going to lay down and die. But he asked her again, will you make something for me to eat? And even though it's the last ingredients that she has on earth, she uses them for him, not for her son, not for herself. She received a prophet. She receives a prophet's reward. 
Because, as you recall, Elijah makes it so that they could eat for a year. The flour, the oil, they never run out. And that's another great story, knocking another one out of the park for God. Except for the fact that as soon as that year was over, Elijah left and the sun died. And so then she, like the Shunemitess, goes running after the prophet and says, What have you done to me? What have you done to my son? Why is he dead? In another case of divine CPR, Elijah, like Elisha, is able to breathe life back into that child through his own mouth. Just like God did for Adam in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. Remember, Adam was created, but he was not animated. He was like a lifeless statue or mannequin. Until in verse 7, God breathed life into Adam's nostrils. And only then was he who had been created by God a man fully alive because he received the breath of God. In Hebrew, it was ruach. In Greek, it was the pneuma. In Latin, it is the spiritus. For us, it is the spirit, the life-giving spirit of God, a holy breath from heaven. That's what God gave to Adam. That's what Elijah and Elisha gave to these dead children. And that's what has been given to us in the church, the life-giving spirit of God. The role of Elijah and Elisha, the role of the prophet, was not only to call people to repentance and call people back to covenant faithfulness, it was to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah and everything about him. All the things that Jesus did throughout his life and especially in the thousand days of his public ministry was foretold by the prophets. History was repeating itself. They foretold his birth, his mighty deeds, his passion, his death, his resurrection. But those prophets also prepared people that when the Messiah comes, he will have power even over death. That's why Elijah and Elisha raised others from the dead. That's why Jesus raised three people from the dead in the Gospels, so that when he was raised from the dead, it might throw open heaven's gate for all who believe, a reminder that our story does not end in death. We will receive something far greater than the prophet's reward. We have the opportunity to become saints and to live forever. If that's all the inspiration and motivation we need to love God more, to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him, it's no small price to pay for the great victory that awaits us all.